Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. Before we get started, make sure you like this video or subscribe and hit the notification bell. All those things that, you know, help uh, us stay on the YouTubing. Um, today we are going to be talking about, obviously, all the fun satanic stuff that happened earlier this year. Um, but before we get started on that, uh, well, we're going to be talking about the Grammys. We're going to be talking about Lauren Southern and her family getting canceled and how it relates to the Gulag Archipelago. We're going to be talking about a lot of different books about the targeting of traditional Catholics. I don't know what a trad Catholic is. Maybe you do. Let me know in the comments. Uh, tra well, I have an idea, but I mean, I don't have, you know, it's, as we say in the tech industry, I have knowledge by name only. Um, transcendentals is what we're going to be talking about midway in the show. What are they? Um, the different kind of ways that they've been described. And then we're going to have the what are you reading segment. And uh, we're going to be going over the books that I'm reading and that you can read along with and uh, and talk about some of the application from it. Specifically, this book right here. What is it? Look at, you're looking over oh, here. sorry. Look yeah, I'm distracted by myself. I have a beautiful face and I can see it and I've got a mirrored thing. Anyway, sorry, I'm not looking at the camera. We might have to take that away. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the woman who is poor uh, and how it applies to um, uh, how Biden made everybody into prostitutes. So, um, yeah, you're going to want to stick around for the end because if that doesn't, you know, is that not a zinger? I don't know what it is. Oh, are you taking away the screen? Okay. Yep, I'm getting too distracted. Okay. So, uh, cue the music. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. All right, we're back. Do you know if that girl in that video, is she single? <laughs> Do you know? She's got a beautiful voice. Oh, man. She does, doesn't she? I bet you she'd uh, say yes for $3,000 for a marriage, you know? <laughs> Sign up to breed yeah. a whole army, maybe? Yeah, maybe, you know? <laughs> there you go. Check out our terms and conditions video on our YouTube channel. All right, so before we get started here, we got some announcements. We uh, have a uh, affiliate link. I don't know if I can use the word partner, but... Uh, I'll talk to Rob about it. I guess I could. Uh, but anyway, we uh, are joining uh, Pro-Life Coffee, North Arrow Coffee. Uh, there's an affiliate link in the bottom. If you go and, and you love coffee, you love babies, you should definitely check out North Arrow Coffee. Um, and you should use my link because then, you know, I get I get support. So um, if you can check that out, uh, promo code Solomon. If you use promo code Solomon, they say you have to say it three times so that it sticks in your head. Solomon. Uh, just not Solomon's corner, just Solomon. And uh, if you use the promo code Solomon, you'll get a discount on your coffee. And we just interviewed Rob Mitt, the uh, the founder of Pro-Life Coffee, North Arrow Coffee. Uh, and uh, they have really good coffee. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Uh, I found out that they roast to order in our interview, which means you order and then they roast it. So it's not sitting in a warehouse somewhere. It is just incredibly good. You should check it out. Also, the writing prompt for next week is uh, what is beauty? So if you did not tune in last week, what we're going to start doing is we're going to start giving the listeners a writing prompt that you should go and just start writing about. Maybe a blog, maybe a journal article. I recommend journal. If you watched last week's episode, you'll understand why. But what is beauty? Okay, and that'll be in the description as well. Um, if you want to catch the pro-life interview, I'm going through my outline here and I totally got it out of order, but that's okay. If you want to catch the pro-life interview, you're going to want to check it out. Uh, it's going to be dropping later this week, probably like Thursday or Friday, you think? 
I thought we were releasing it on Saturday. Well, we got the live stream on Saturday, so, well, we'll figure it out. It's going to be yeah. either Friday or Saturday. So if you want it Friday, put it in the comments and make my wife work harder. Um, and then uh, Rumble update. Can you show a screenshot of Rumble? Are you able yeah. to do that? Yeah, I can. Um, we are uh, still growing on the Rumble channel. We are growing on our YouTube channel really well. We really appreciate everybody who subscribed. If you also watch content on Rumble, please go and subscribe on Rumble. We're sitting around like 13 or something like that. We need 25 so we can start live streaming there. We would much rather go and uh, go on Rumble primarily. So uh, obviously we're trying to you know get away from the big tech stuff and all that fun, fun culture war stuff. And then uh, big news. I forgot. We got the, oh, are you showing it right now? Yeah. Okay. What did you want to? Just, uh, you know, go to our channel, hit the follow. We're going to be posting videos there. Right there. Right there. Yep. That's the one. And uh, the other thing we need to do is show them that we got a COVID ban. Well, not a COVID ban, but we got the we got the COVID banner on one of our Spotify videos. This was a big accomplishment. Uh, I just don't know what to say. You know, I just want to thank everybody. I want to thank Pfizer. I want to thank COVID. I want to thank Dr. Fauci all the CDC people who made it possible for me to get this award as a COVID-19, you know, misinformation right. banner. All right, hold on. We're you got right it up there? there. Here it is. Here Brace go. yourselves. Oh, Boom. Look, look at that. that. There you go. What a treasure. Yep. I was, I was pretty excited about that. So uh, if you missed last week's episode, we talked about the Project Veritas video that dropped that pretty much confirmed everybody who was called a conspiracy theory for theorist for the last two years. Um, for all those that you, uh, you know, got jabbed, uh, you probably don't want to watch it because it's going to make you paranoid about whether or not you're going to die someday. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, so we're going to move on to the actual stories now. Do you have that transition slide? I sure do. We're, we're testing out Lindsay running the, uh, running the stuff. So we'll see Get how this ready, goes. Folks, let us know if it's a little too loud. Yeah. I think I fixed the problems from last week. So. Okay. Here we go. Boom. There we go. It's not that bad. So what am I taking this to right okay, now? Okay, we're going to talk about the, uh... oh, man. <laughs> it was just a week from hell, but I, I guess we'll start with that. Yeah, we'll start with the week from hell. Okay, so one of the things that happened last week was that um, pretty much everybody who tried to downplay their justification for, you know, supporting pop culture, right, they were totally wrong. Like, if you if you think, I mean... I don't even know who this guy. I think it's Sam Worthington, right? Sam Smith. Sam Smith. Yep. Who's Sam Worthington? I don't know. Okay, Sam Smith. He's a transgender person. Uh, he just claims to be gay. Is know. he just gay now? I don't know. Okay, so the bottom line is, is that uh, last week at the Grammys, we'll play a little bit of the clip. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely hellish, and and it's just it's just horrible. Um, are we showing part of the clip, clip? Yeah, just just play the clip. Like, I'm yeah, that, yeah, just careful. I don't. I'm Brace yourselves. It's it's gross. You might have to do a refresh. Let's just see. You're gonna have to do a refresh. I'm almost certain. There it goes. Here we go. It's pretty gross. And everybody's. Nasty and gross. It's kind of nice for you guys though because you can't really see it that well. I don't think okay. So now I Just want to well pause it right there right there. Okay, so 
I just want to let this set in for a second. Okay. Uh, and everybody who watches Daily Wire and all this stuff, you guys already know this, but a lot of the listeners that I have don't necessarily listen to Daily Wire. I think some of you do, but not everybody. But the bottom line is, is I just, I, nobody else asks this question. And I just want to ask you guys this question. When you see that, do you not wonder what people that, like everybody, not just the artists, but the people who put the money behind this thing, the people who organized the event, the Grammys, and said, you know what? We're going to have an erotic, demonic, satanic ritual. Which, by the way, there were people on Twitter saying was a worship service. So I'm just saying it's all out there for you. Okay. Do you not wonder what people like this do in their private life? Now, I know the libertarian is going to say, I don't care what he's doing in his private life. Well, he's not exactly doing it in his private life anymore, is he? Um, And I understand that, you know, again, if he was just staying in his house, maybe that would be fine. But we live in a community. That means we have a common unity, meaning our society unites us together, which means that when we do things in our private life, it has an impact on the community. So if you get sick, for example, let's say all our doctors got wiped out by the COVID vaccine. No, as far as I know, that's not really a thing as far as doctors just dropping dead. Um, but let's just say the vaccine was bad and they decided to follow the Nuremberg trials in which doctors should have been the ones who were testing it on themselves first and we lose them all. Well, their death has an impact on the community. Okay. So we have to deal with the fact that society and its individual members, their choices and their, uh, the consequences that are outside of their control, maybe genetically or health wise or whatever it is, does have a bearing on the overall health of the community. It's just a fact. That doesn't mean libertarianism is false. That doesn't mean that communism is true. It just means that these this is a variable that in your political theory you have to account for. And so now we have this public affirmation of, dis, of just uh, insulting Christianity, insulting monotheistic religions, uh, somebody said, you know, they never go after Islam. I'm pretty sure Islam's not happy with this one, guys. Like, just going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think that Islam's like, did you see what they did to the Christians? <laughs> like, I don't think that's what they are saying. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, you've got this, this group, and it's sponsored by Pfizer. Okay. Again, this stuff doesn't just, like, happen. There's weeks of planning, rehearsal, money, administrative problems they have to overcome just like you or i we decide to put on a big show or something for jesus everybody knows that there's going to be all these hurdles that happen that you got to get over we got oh we don't have the costumes oh we don't have this oh what are we going to do well we're going to order these little horns and put it on a top hat because we ran out of the skull caps that have the horns on like they have to do all this stuff like they have to make the demonic their end in order to pull off a show like this and not only that when somebody like pfizer says we're going to sponsor the grammys that that aligns themselves with, hey, we want to help you guys out with this project. Okay, so this is a problem. Now, if that had happened during the pandemic, just be honest, would you have felt like the jab was safe? Like, if you saw this whole thing happening two years before the pandemic, okay, before all the conspiracy theories about the the the, the nanobots and the alien juice and the 
you know, the weird stuff happening and all these different things. Sorry, my computer just went to sleep on me. I had to hit it. Anyway, if all these things were going on, it never happened. All these conspiracy theories were just didn't actually come to the forefront. And you watch that. And then they said, now get now get jabbed. You're going to tell me, especially you Christians out there that pushed this vaccine. You're going to tell me you're going to recommend that vaccine after what you just watched. Pastors who got up in the pulpit and said, you need to get vaccinated. You need to get the Pfizer vaccine because of love of neighbor. You're going to say that now. Again, I understand that their ability to produce vaccines is not entirely dependent on uh, whether or not they sponsor a satanic ritual. But let's just use this, the age-old example that we always use amongst Christians. If my son needs brain surgery, right, and the atheist doctor believes in evolution, random evolution, not guided evolution or intelligent design or any of these things, and he's the best brain surgeon in the world. He's the best. But he's an atheist. I've talked to you Christians out there, just like myself. We all say, yep, I want him to do the surgery for my son. Okay, let's change it up. Now he's a Satanist. He's the best brain surgeon in the world. He's a Satanist. And you walk into his office for your consultation about how he's going to operate on your kid. And you're a Christian. You're wearing your cross necklace. You walk in there and he says, I'm ready to operate on your son. Are you going to trust your son with the best Satanist brain surgeon in the world? I don't think so. Again, doesn't mean that they can't do medicine. But is it a wise judgment to do that? knowing that you're essentially handing your child over to someone who is openly antagonizing your faith and religion. He's a sworn enemy to the people of God. That is what satanic rituals are, whether implicitly or explicitly. We'll get into that later when we talk about transcendentals and truth. So anyway, just so you know, that's the group that pushed the vaccine. They also sponsored the Grammys, and it was a disgusting demonic display and everybody should be asking themselves, what else do these people do? And what else do they do in private? And what else are they funding? And what other projects am I putting my money towards? Because these these players, okay, once you, I got news for you. Once you hit like a billion dollars in net worth or multi-million dollars in net worth, whatever you want to say, once you get to that really, really, really top echelon, the CEO of Disney and the CEO of Microsoft are probably getting invited to the same parties. CEO, like, and we know what it is. It's the World Economic Forum, right? I mean, like, we know that there is a group of people that get together who have lots and lots and lots and lots of money, and they talk about ways for them to further their own agendas and things like that. And they just see this stuff as a means to an end. Christianity's getting in the way, so why not partner with the devil? It's not the first time that people in power have done this. Hashtag Pontius Pilate. Okay, so anyway. Um, or we're going to move on now to the, uh, Lauren Southern Airbnb and the Gulag story. So this was a story that I thought was really interesting. A lot of people covered it, but they didn't cover it in the way that, uh, well, that I thought they should cover it. And that's why I'm going to cover it the way I think I should cover it. Cause it's my show, man. It's my show. Um, there is a, uh, so for those that don't know, and I can't read that because you, you took away my ability oh, to see okay. the screen. So, yeah, I got it. All right. So for those that don't know who Lauren Southern is, Lauren Southern is a uh, journalist. She's kind of like another, I, I think she's Canadian, actually. 
And she uh, worked for Rebel Media. I don't know if she's still with them or not. I think she may have gone on to be independent or whatever. Rebel News is really good as well, especially on the, on the World Economic Forum. Anyway, her parents decided to use Airbnb. Who likes Airbnb? We all like Airbnb. It's nice. You know, you get to go to a nice house. Although, I'll be honest, I feel like that the, you know, my experiences with Airbnbs have been less than awesome. But the point is, is her parents received this letter saying, we have an update to share with you after you've, you know, after they registered for their Airbnb. We've removed you from the Airbnb platform because your account is closely associated with a person who isn't allowed to use Airbnb. This means you'll no longer be able to book reservations on Airbnb. Now, a little backstory. Um, this kind of stuff happens. Not, well, let me, let me, let me figure out how I want to say this. This kind of stuff, this, this, the nature of what's happening here is, is, is contaminating somebody like they're diseased and essentially saying, again, this was her parents. Okay. Who tried to do Airbnb and they saw that she's related to Lauren Southern. Their parents are, and that they cannot serve her parents because of who Lauren Southern is. Okay. That's insane. And this happens just as an, an analogy or a parallel. This has happened in athletics as well. So um, when I was a, a runner back in the day, um, certain states had rules that if, a, if an athlete came from a different state to compete there, it would not affect me and my ability to compete in my home state, but it would affect all those other athletes in that state to compete in theirs. And so what they did was they made me a pariah and kept me from being able to, from the other athletes from being able to compete. And what ends up happening is, is that those athletes drop out of the race and then the event falls apart unless I pull out. And it ends up putting political pressure on the young athlete who just wants to run against the best runners. And so you had to pick your races in certain locations where those rules wouldn't apply so that everybody could try and run their faster times. So this idea of making somebody a pariah is a pretty uh, standard tactic of pressuring people and things like that. It doesn't just happen in politics. It can happen in other ways, too. But the reason why this one is particularly important is because it is in the public opinion, the court of public opinion. And so there's a quote from Gulag Archipelago, Volume 1. And uh, it's it's this one here. It's this nice bright pink one, which I don't understand why they do that. I feel like the Russians have like a thing for like pink, like hot pink in like 90s colors. But anyway, and this is published by Harper Perennial Modern Classics. So if you want the page numbers, you can see that. Um, and so here is uh, the, the one that I want to show, Lindsay, is Article 58, the quote on Article 58. Um, all right. So the bottom line is, is Article 58, Section 6 was on espionage. This was how um, Article 58 was how people got put in the gulag. Okay. So when we read this quote, I just want you to understand what's happening here. What is going on is that if you were affiliated in any way with a foreign operative, somebody who wasn't Russian, well, then here's what would happen to you. Okay. You'd get thrown in the gulag. So espionage was a very, con was very convenient in its simplicity comprehensible both to undeveloped criminal and to uh, a learned jurist, to a journalist, and to public opinion, meaning the public opinion of people, if you decided to be accused of collusion with the foreigners, was, was everywhere, from the jurist to the special force to the Secret Service, all that kind of stuff. The breadth of interpretation 
of Section 6 lay further in the fact there's a light right in front of me. That's why I'm struggling to read this thing. So I'm like ducking and diving and weaving, but that's okay. Low budget uh, presentation. Uh, the breadth of the interpretation of section, section 6 lay further in the fact that people were sentenced not only for actual espionage, but also for suspicion of espionage, unproven espionage, for which they gave the whole works, meaning, you know, they, they basically interpret it however they want. This is actually in context from this, from this book. Even context leading to suspicion of espionage. In other words, and this is Solzhenitsyn's words, Let's say that an acquaintance of an acquaintance of your wife had a dress made by the same seamstress, who was, of course, an NKVD agent. That's a Secret Service person. They change their name all the time. There's the Cheka, the NKVD, the Blue Caps, all the same group. It just, they kept changing their name to keep people guessing. Used by the wife of a foreign diplomat. In other words, if you make a dress, you give it to an acquaintance, and then that gets given to a foreign diplomat, they can get you for espionage. Now, this ends up coming up from the, or coming top down from the communist regime. But when you read about communist revolutions, you realize that this starts at the populist level. And what you're seeing with the Airbnb quote and their response to uh, Lauren Southern's parents is the same parallel that they are going to follow your relationship with other people and then determine whether or not you are politically uh, diseased. And if you are, then just by virtue of you being related to somebody, you also are going to be uh, suffer the same consequences. And so the reason why I think that that story in particular with Lauren Southern on Airbnb is important is because there are a lot of people who downplay the parallels of communism in America as a cultural revolution. And they think that, you know, our, our civil system is just going to is just immune to communist ideas and populism and things like that. It's just not true. I mean, Russia was huge, um, and, and they still succumbed, succumbed to communist revolutions. For various reasons, obviously, it's not a one-to-one, -one, okay? Don't, don't think that's what I'm saying. There's geographic reasons, reasons that play into a lot of the Nazi and communist totalitarian regimes over in Europe and the Eastern world. But for us in America, that doesn't mean that ideologically we couldn't find ourselves in the same spot. And so... With the Lauren Southern thing, I think that's a big lesson we have to understand is that it's here and it's in these businesses and they're flirting with it. And if you don't raise your voice and push back, then they will continue to move that line forward. They will continue to close the acceptability of other people and, and keep them from uh, participating in the public square. So um, moving on to the next the, the, the next story is... Um, is the targeting of trad Catholics. Now, this one is interesting, um, primarily because uh, I remember when 9-11 uh, uh, happened. You find in the, the story. It's the Newsweek one. You can just pull it up. Yeah, there we go. So this was in Newsweek. Um, do you have the title of the thing at the top? Yeah, here we go. FBI under pressure for targeting Catholics in leaked document. Okay. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just trying to show you that these this thing actually happened. Um Essentially, there's a document that says that these traditional Catholics, there's a there's a debate amongst Catholics about how they should do the mass or their church service. And uh, there are groups that do it all in Latin, as they did before Vatican II. And there's just a lot of nuance and things like that. I'm not Catholic, so I can't speak to that. But I will say this. 
I have reached out to the Latin Catholics, a couple of them, and we are going to invite some of them on the show. So if you are following us on Twitter, when you see me, uh, you know, an- announce the invite, you know, make sure you retweet and, and show that you're excited for them to come on. Um, it sounds like we're going to be able to get some of them so that people can understand what's going on. And this article kind of made me think, yep, yeah, we definitely need to talk about it, even if most of us are Protestants. So that being said, 9-11 happens. Okay, let's rewind the clock back. 9-11 happens, and I can remember, I was in eighth grade, okay, during 9-11, and I remember exactly where I was, and I remember conversations around the Patriot Act. And when you're a kid, you don't think about these things. But I remember coming into college, and people were concerned about the Patriot Act and all those things, and uh, what it was going to do, how it was going to spy on people, all the stuff. I didn't know who Edward Snowden was. I didn't know any of that stuff. Didn't find out about that stuff till much later in, um, in my life. But I do remember the Christian response to Muslims who were claiming that they were being unjustly surveyed or persecuted or whatever. And a lot of, a lot of the mindset back then was, well, just convert. Well, if, you, if you're not a Muslim, then life will be easier for you. See, if, you, if, you, if these people aren't blowing stuff up, then, uh, you know, your life goes a lot easier, but they are. So maybe you should just convert to something else. And of course, this is absurd, but it was easy for us as Christians who still had the cultural uh, approval of what we did, of our practices. You know, people still, well, yeah, I understand you're not for gay marriage, but, you know, Christians are still cool. We can all get along and, you know, we'll just live together in this, you know, uh, diverse country. And, you know, these Muslims are just going to have to reform. You know, I even had somebody say, you know, well, what Muslims need is they need another Martin Luther. And that might be the case, especially for some of the more extremist groups. However, that being said, Christians that I saw in my community, okay, this isn't the news, but the overall view was, well, if they just converted, they wouldn't have these problems because they wouldn't look like terrorists. That was that was my experience. Okay, I'm not saying that's what everybody said. I'm not saying that nobody tried to help them. Just saying that was my experience in the communities that I was in. So, and that was also just my perception as well. So it's not necessarily that this is what everybody held. I'm just saying that was kind of even my just default. Well, you know, I mean, if you had the truth, you would life would be a lot easier, right? Anyway, so that that's something that now with this FBI story is coming back where the FBI on, on Christians now, because now Christians have fallen from the cultural approval. And now they are being seen as threats to the state. And what is the state doing? It's using the same tools and the same psychological weapons and things like that against these groups of people. And they're going to start infiltrating these things. And they're going to start looking into these Christian groups because, you know, they're extremists. And you can see this in the in the article. And so the FBI has come under scrutiny after a leaked document showed the Bureau warning that radical traditionalists Radical. Do you remember what we used the word radical for? Or how Muslim youth were being radicalized? I mean, that was only a couple years ago. We were talking about Americans being radicalized to go over and join ISIS. But now they're using the same term, radical, to describe traditional Catholics. Okay. Kyle Serapin, a former FBI special agent, is a whistleblower, obtained the document and published it on Uncovered DC website. Keep going down a little bit. There's a quote in here that I want to get to. 
Okay, there we go. There we go. Uh, up a little bit. Up a little bit. There we go. The document is titled Interest of Racially or Ethnically Motivated Violent Extremists in Radical Traditionalist Catholic Ideology Almost Certainly Presents New Mitigation Opportunities. Now, we used to write titles like that back in the day for books about adventures. And apparently now the FBI is trying to copy book titles from like the 1850s. But the point is, here's the question. This is where you got to get savvy, okay? And, and there's a quote that relates to this. And it's uh, just uh, so you can look for it before we jump into this, Lindsay, is uh, the one that says, um, uh, I will not seek proof of their actions. It's, it's that quote from Solzhenitsyn. It's, he says they fed them to animals and stuff. So you, you look at this right here. Why are they actually releasing this? Okay, Nothing comes into the news now without people having a reason for letting it into the news. Why are they telling you that this was in the FBI's documents? And they go on to say, you know, the FBI says, we're, we're deleting this document. We're trying to figure out why it was circulated and all this kind of stuff. Now, you only can take their word at this. You, you, can't, you can't verify whether or not these people and what they're saying is actually true. You can't even verify that they have their be your best interest in mind. So let's just change this for a second, okay? Let's say you're a Muslim. Back around 9-11, you're a moderate Muslim. You're not planning on, you, you don't believe in, in jihad. You don't believe in any of those things. And you're reading this, and the FBI says, we're going to go through and we're going to remove all this. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. Do you think you'd really believe that? After all the 9-11 surveillance, all this stuff? I don't think so. But not only that, with all the things that have happened thus far, with the Pfizer, with the COVID, with the uh, suppression of truth, the Twitter files that have been leaked that showed government collusion and pressure from the White House on these kinds of uh, journalists, I think is, is, a real, is a real problem for us to be able to trust these people because essentially it's like, comrade, we are so sorry. We did not mean to leak that document that says you are a horrible and evil person that needs to be silenced and suppressed and thrown into the gulag. We will delete that document right now. You can trust us. The FBI, we love you. Right? I mean, that's that's what they're basically saying. And you would be like, yeah, I just don't believe you. And you shouldn't believe them. And Solzhenitsyn has a quote on this where he says this of the secret police in Russia, where they were apparently, and I think this proves a, a really important point, about how you're supposed to approach the actual relationship between you and the government. You don't have to prove anything about what the government is doing. They have to prove it to you. Okay, They have to prove that they are trustworthy. Not that you have to prove they're untrustworthy. You have the benefit of innocent until proven guilty. The government doesn't have that. And the reason why they don't have that is because they have a sword. And they have authority. They have power. And as a result, it is a lot riskier to trust somebody with the sword when you don't have one than it is to doubt them. They have to earn your trust. You don't have to earn theirs. That's not that's not how this works. You have innocence until proven guilty. That is that is the standard. So, here we go. There was a rumor going the rounds between uh what is uh hold on just a second. I'm going to move that light. I just got to move it cuz I can't read that. Make me look weird. I think hers are all red. Those are right. We'll be all right. 
Here, now I need you to monitor the screen. You got it? Okay, that works. All right. So the uh, there was a rumor going the rounds between 1918 and 1920 that the Petrograd Cheka, that's the secret police for Russians, did not shoot all those condemned to death, but fed some of them alive to the animals in the city zoos. I don't know whether this is true or calumny. I don't know. How to, I'm guessing that's made up. Or if there were any such cases, how many there were, but I wouldn't set out to look for proof either. Following the practice of the blue caps, I would propose that they prove to us that this was impossible. This is an important point that Solzhenitsyn is making here. And we'll continue with the quote in a minute, Lindsay, but you can switch it back. There's a lot of people who at this point, after all the satanic stuff, after all of the botched COVID stuff, after the broken trust, again, Let's just cite Patrick Leccioni. The foundation of any good, healthy organization is trust, okay? They have not shown you that you should trust them at this point. They are they have success that has been inherited from generation to generation to generation. They did not have the success, and I'm not talking about Trump and the vaccine and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about whether it's Trump or Obama. Anybody who is a president at this point, basically like post-World War II, Essentially, like the political leaders came on the shoulders of other men and women who led America to this point. Okay, they have to reprove or reaffirm the trust of the people and they have to re-earn it with each successive generation. Okay, and this is why, you know, somebody a lot of people say DeSantis looks like a promising figure because he could actually possibly earn the trust of the people. Why? Because he's taking the slow and steady approach. And if he does great but at the same time he's still a politician and maybe we should you know keep that perspective still even with DeSantis no 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 I don't believe that DeSantis is the perfect candidate he has to prove to me that he gets stuff done and that he's the perfect candidate that includes disseminating that information in a context in which the culture is trying to silence that stuff so to wrap this whole thing up the the reality is, is that we are in a much, much darker culture and and we have to recognize that the government is weaponizing itself and the culture is weaponizing itself against Christian values, including those that we would say are just merely the fruits of an intellectual life. You're just not even allowed to make truth claims anymore without consequence. And so I want to um, I want to go back to that quote, Lindsay, and, and, and finish it out. He says, <clears throat> evidently. Evil doing also has a threshold magnitude. Yes, a human being hesitates and bobs back and forth between good and evil all his life. He slips, falls back, clambers up, rep repents, things begin to darken again. But just so long as the threshold of evil doing is not crossed, the possibility of returning remains and he himself is still within reach of our hope. But when, but when through the density of of can you get that to where we can see everything can you move me there we go the density of evil actions the result either of their own extreme degree or of the absoluteness of his power he suddenly crosses that threshold he has left humanity behind and without perhaps the possibility of return now he doesn't say absolutely but where people like sam uh what, what's his name sam what sam smith sam smith and the in people in the transgender community it's not that they're beyond saving but the more they go down this road, the less likely they're going to be able to come back. 
It's the same thing that happens with evil in every single case. And it's not to say that these people are intrinsically evil. But when they decide to go down the road of my will be done, not thy will be done, that is the road that leads to destruction. And not just to the destruction of them, but also the destruction of those who are closest to them and those that, that, that care about them. Not because people are going to hate them or any of that kind of stuff, but because actions do have consequences. They do have an impact on people's lives in the same way that if somebody is an alcoholic, he has a negative impact on his family, and that family is wounded and hurt. The same thing is happening in these transgender communities, and we, we've got to make sure that we're actually speaking out about this stuff because if we do not actually talk about this stuff in our private conversations with our pastors, with our small groups, when you hear it in when you hear this, well, you know, we just got to love each other in your small groups, you need to gently push back on that and say, what do you mean by that? How should we do that? How do we tell them they are wrong in a loving way? That's the goal. Because if we don't do that and we continue to let this roller coaster just fly off the rails, we're all going to be in trouble, including Sam, including you know those who are most affected by this propaganda and the, and the ideologies in play. So that wraps up our current events segment. We're going to move on to the transcendentals. That's a transition slide there that you're supposed to hit. Am I? Yeah. Cause... Go. All right. Moving on to trans. That's why we call it a transition slide, Lindsay, is because we're trans. Everybody, we're transitioning to the next section. <laughs> All right. So what is truth? All right. So we're, we're doing a series on the uh, transcendentals, and I'm going to try and go through this pretty quick, but we'll see. This is obviously what Pontius Pilate says uh, uh, during Jesus's trial. But before we answer this uh, infamously immortalized Pontius Pilate, we can ask another question. Before we ask what is truth, let's ask the question, what is the purpose of the human mind? Every object out there has a purpose. Okay, My cup has the purpose of holding fluid. And if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, because everybody loves to know what the exceptions are, there are secondary and primary purposes. Okay. Um, the most obvious of this is in, uh, is in sex. Sex is primarily meant to produce a child. How do we know? Because there's nothing else that comes after a child in that in relation. But there's also all these secondary things that lead to the culmination of that event, which is pleasure, love, all those things. Okay? So you have these various different uh, purposes, but there's a culminating purpose at the end. So what is the human mind for? What's its primary purpose? Is It's obviously knowledge, but knowledge for what? Uh, why do you have a, a mind? Why not just have a brain? Not only that, why are the senses wired in such a way to give rise to signals in the brain, which leads to concepts in the mind? Some might argue that there is no distinction between minds and brains, but that's a topic for another time. Maybe we could do this with Dr. Ed Fazer. I don't know if you know this, but he follows me now on Twitter. Boom. Uh, who knows? We'll see. Let me know if you want to see an interview with Dr. Ed Fazer, and I'll reach out to him. For the purposes of this discussion, we can say that man was made for truth and not for lies. That seems like a very simple statement, right? Nobody should have any problems with that. Man's not made for a lie. And if you want to assert that, that's totally fine. You can go to the Grammys. He was made for the beautiful, not the ugly. And again, if you want to fight that, go to the Grammys. His appetite is oriented towards the good and not the evil. Once again, go to the Grammys. There you go. If you, if you don't agree with being oriented towards the good, go to the Grammys. Some might claim and uh, subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Some might claim that this is false on the grounds that no one defines these qualities, truth, goodness, and beauty the same way, which is correct. 
but everyone would use these terms to affirm their positions and perversion to describe the positions opposed to their own. Meaning, we always use, well, my position's right, yours is wrong. We'll even imply that, especially those who want relativism. They really don't like this kind of conversation. You see that in What is a Woman when the professor tells Matt Walsh, well, you're pushing an essentialist view, and uh, that's that's a real real problem. Well, you're, you're saying Matt Walsh is essentially wrong then. I mean, that's just what you're saying. It does, it's not compatible in your view. And therefore, you're going to say his view is perverted because he shouldn't have an essentialist view based on your definition of the good. So regardless, you're affirming the principles that truth, goodness, and beauty are what man is after. And what we fight about is who has it. It's not a question of does it exist. It's a question of who has it. And those are important because if we can't agree that this is what we're aiming at, then we don't have objectivity at all. But it's the very fact that because we are aiming at the true, the good, and the beautiful, that we can even argue intelligibly with somebody who would assert something as absurd as, you know, you can't have an essentialist definition of truth. And I mean that essentially. <laughs> so, uh, moving on. Furthermore, without an objective view of reality, we lose all the sense of redemption. As a narrative, for example, like there's no, there's no sense of which good can come from evil or that your suffering has any meaning or purpose to it outside of just pain and, and, and the ugly. But we know that the most beautiful stories are oftentimes these stories of a phoenix rising from the ashes. And it's the ashes that make the phoenix and its act of rising that much more beautiful. Or in other words, uh, we also lose the ends justify the means question, the principle of do the ends justify the means. We lose that principle when we lose objectivity because we can no longer actually say that principle in what we really mean. What we really mean when we say do the ends justify the means is if this thing or this claim is really true, can I justify what I'm about to do or sacrifice to obtain it? Man's mind seems to be made for something, and that something is the truth in all its various mediums. And one thing Thomas Aquinas would say, just as a side note, is that truth is when the soul is in conformity with reality or with its object. It knows the thing which it seeks. And I know the, all these generalizations, like analytics and skeptics and contrarians are always like, but what about this? Well, what about this? We'll put it in the comments, buddy. Anyway. Truth can be obtained through a variety of ways, though. In, this could be through experience. This could be through the written word. This could be through art. This could be through science. There's all these different ways. And we, we understand that there's varying degrees of these different ways. So in English, we would describe these various ways like this. That is truly beautiful. Maybe we say that of a piece of art. We would also say of that piece of art, that is truly good. Or that artist must be truly a genius. We also use the negative she is totally ugly or he is literally a comic book villain and we're using different words here totally literally or incredibly stupid as different ways in which we can say the truth even though it's not the actual word that's in there that's what we're saying we could say she's truly ugly she's he's truly a comic book villain he's truly stupid but we use different words because that's just the way our language has developed i'm sure jim is going to jump all over me on that one here, the language is showing that we recognize that truth is related in degree to every other quality of existence or being. Those would be beauty, goodness, unity. We're not going to get into all of them. Some people have defined more than just uh, the four, truth, goodness, beauty, and uh, or truth, goodness, and beauty, and unity. 
There's a there's a couple other ones that some people have asserted, but we're going to talk about truth, beauty, and goodness. Those are going to be the main three. And today we're talking primarily about truth. We recognize that goodness or evil, beauty or perversion, and truth or false, true or false, are capable of describing every being. Where there is being or existence, there is truth, beauty, and goodness. But depending on the being, these qualities will vary by degree. For example, Lucifer is described in the Bible as being one of the most beautiful angels. Satan was part of God's creation, which God called good. When a being falls, whether angel or human, they are falling away from the true, the good, and the beautiful. Their being, or their existence, is marred but still intact. Thus, within every being is the void reminding them in concept what they once had in reality, the actual truth, actual good, and actual beauty. In other words, wherever there is being, there is good, the true, and the beautiful. No being means there is nothing, okay? If there is no being, then there is no human being, okay? No existence or being, no angelic being. No being or existence, no demonic being. Do you see where we're going with this? If you don't have being, you are nothing, okay? If you do have being, though, in some sense, you have to have some remnant of God's fingerprints on you, even if you are fallen. These prints, even even if you're a demon, because you were originally created by God. Now, I don't think a lot of demons listen to this podcast, so thankfully. Uh, these prints are the good, the beautiful, and the true, because these only come naturally from God. And when I say naturally, I don't mean that God is some material ooze out there that's emanating these things. It's that it is of his nature to be good, true, and beautiful. And so these things don't come about unless there is a God. He has to be the source of those things. So there's a book that I've been reading about this, and we're not getting into the, the reading section, but the, this is where I'm pulling the next section is Mortimer Adler's View of Truth. And I think it's really important because it explains in a lot of ways how a country like America, which is evangelical in nature, or Christian, Protestant, whatever you want to say, it's, it's just, it's still majority Christian country can have something like the Grammys happen um, in, in light of, of, of the, the culture that we're in. Like, how did this happen? How did we actually end up with this uh, satanic ritual that, that was blasted all over the world, by the way? So it didn't stay here. I mean, this thing was all over the world. How did we become the nexus of promoting these these ideologies when we are also one of the most quote unquote Christian countries in the world, I think I think Mortimer Adler has some some really good views on this. One of the things he talks about in there is this idea that Western countries and Eastern countries have different views. How are we doing on time, by the way? Uh, so we're at fifty three minutes. Okay. Right now. It's, it's All right. We'll probably go over a little bit. We'll be at we'll be done in twenty minutes. So. The unity of truth view versus the compartmentalization of truth. This is this is basically West versus East uh, truth views, okay? And, and truth just is what corresponds to reality, okay? The West would say, along with Thomas Aquinas, according to Mortimer Adler, is that all truth ultimately finds its, its unity in existence. Like the, the, the truth of reality has this emanating effect of historical truth or scientific truth or philosophical truth or sociological truth or psychological truth or theological truth. Even though we have these different kinds of truth, they still find their source 
in truth itself. So this is where when you have something like evolution, for example, right? Evolution contradicts the Bible. Uh, and so in the sense that God didn't use evolution, okay, we're talking about the, the Darwinian form of evolution. We're not talking about intelligent design or, you know, old earth versus young earth creation models. We're just talking about atheistic evolution. There's no God behind this, okay? If that's true, then the claims of the Genesis account have to be reinterpreted, mainly that the Bible would be false because if, if no God created and all this stuff can just happen by itself, then there can't be a God. I mean, if, if God is not behind creation, then, you know, the Bible is false. That is not the same thing as saying that God couldn't use evolution or that it couldn't be a directed process over millennia. Nobody is saying that that would contradict the Bible. It's just, regardless of whether it's evolution, if you have an atheistic view of the world, then the Bible just isn't true because it claims that the opposite is true. And so the Western view says that we, we all are after this nature of truth and that if we have a contradiction in our views, we have to adjudicate it through philosophy, through reason, through theology. Um, some things are off limits from these things like statements of faith, right? So statements of faith, one of the things he'll say about that is that a statement of faith is something that can't contradict these things, but they can't be disproven either. So for Christians out there, this is what we say about the Trinity. We say one nature, three persons. Now that does not prove that the Trinity is true. It just proves it's not false. That's important because the only reason why we believe it is on faith. Okay? We believe the Trinity on faith. Why? Because it's affirmed in the scriptures, but we can't put it in a test tube. We can't we can't go and find the fingerprints of the Trinity in the in the matter of the universe. I mean, some people might want to say, well, there's this relationship stuff, and maybe even with truth, goodness, and beauty, you could draw the same analogy. Like truth is not goodness and goodness is not beauty, but in being they're all the same, right? The nature of being is different than is is truth, is goodness, is beauty, but truth is not goodness, goodness is not beauty, and beauty is not truth. We could say those things, but they're all they all have their they're all tied together in being. But Mortimer Adler says this this is what sets the Western religions, specifically Christianity, apart from the Eastern religions. And the Eastern religions actually grant that there is contradiction and technology is a separate thing or all these natural laws and stuff, even though they contradict a lot of the religion, religion is basically unreachable from that. And so th this is really interesting based on the way that Mortimer Adler, Mortimer Adler presents it, because he actually says that because of things like AI, because of things like the uh, computers, because of things like mathematics and the way that they transcend culture, things like the law of non-contradiction have to be true. And this means that, you know, you can't have two, two things contradicting each other. They're either both false or one is true. That's just the reality. Um, and even if somebody wanted to say, no, you know, there's a third option, you know, it could be meaningless. It's like, it's still either that is true or my position is true. It can't, it can't, my position can't be meaningless at that point. It's because we're talking about two propositions that aren't meaningless. So when Mortimer Adler gets into this unity of truth thing, he says, what we have to recognize as, as religious people is that when something from these other spheres of truth come in conflict with another one, 
like maybe quantum mechanics comes in conflict with what I just said about logic and truth. Well, we might, and he has a whole chapter on that. I haven't read that part yet. Sorry, spoiler alert. But what we would have to do is we would have to try and battle it out and adjudicate those things and figure out how we can make this work because we still have this other system of technology that actually is objectively the case. It's undeniable. You got this phone? We all know what it does. There's, there's nothing that we can do to deny and say, well, that doesn't exist. And the principles that it's based on are false. Well, you can't because it, it exists in China. It exists in us, our country. It exists all over the world. Everybody's using these things. It, it, it's, it's an undeniable fact that the principles that built this phone are true because of what it's produced. Because that's the nature of scientific truth is that it can be proven through scientific results. It's not the same thing in historical truth or philosophical truth or any of these other things. And most of the time, people would say, ah, see, that's why scientism is true, because look at all the great things that it does. The problem is, is that we can't say those are great things without something philosophical to affirm what greatness is, because science doesn't define what greatness is. Science is, a, is like a gun trying to hit a target. And so do you want genocide? Because you can complete that by scientific means. Or do you want to heal people and make them better? Okay, that's a different target, but the tool is still the same. You can either build a house or you can, you know, go to the Pelosi's. Anyway, but point is, when we compare this to the Eastern religions, though, this is what uh, Mortimer Adler says about the Eastern religions and the unity of truth view. The pursuit of truth in mathematics, and you don't have this quote, Lindsay. The pursuit of truth in mathematics, science, and philosophy is governed by freedom from contradictions. What that means is, is that if we have a contradiction, we change our views. Now that mathematics and science have become transcultural, one might suppose that the logic of incompatible propositions would also have become transcultural. But that is not the case. Some, if not all of the Eastern, Far Eastern cultures do not accept this rule of thought with respect to incompatibles nor do they accept the underlying view of reality that it presupposes. It is not self-evidently true for them. Contradictions, in their view, lie at the very heart of reality. Now, what's really interesting about, these, um, about this, this view is that this is, this, and this is what ties back to how is all this weird cultural stuff happening in a Christian country. He says earlier on that, that these... Um, these Eastern religions, even though they don't have explicit doctrinal statements like the Roman Catholics or the Jews or um, the, uh, the Reformed traditions or whatever, most Christians, traditionally speaking, have a authority, the scripture, the church, their, their synagogue, whatever. And from that, they get doctrines about God and man. And then from those doctrines come their moral obligations. In the Eastern religions, it's not so much that it's that you have this moral, you just have a moral uh, system. And by becoming more good, according to Mortimer Adler, you attain enlightenment. And so Mortimer Adler will say this is explicit versus implicit doctrinal positions. Obviously, one is top down and therefore you have these moral rules that you are following because they, they are what God intended you to be. And how do you know that? Because of the authorities and the doctrines that they established. These doctrines are accepted by faith, and so they can't be contradictory to all the truth that we know. Like, you know, you couldn't have like a, a religion that said, uh, we believe in God and that phones don't exist. 
that that's not a statement of faith because we can prove that phones exist just like this. Unless some, then they would do something like, well, you know, we define a phone as something that you can't see, taste, touch, or smell. Okay, okay well then that's not, that's just not this because I can see, taste, touch, and smell it. Which would then, we would call a superstition. So we keep going down this compartmentalization of truth. What they do instead, because they still accept technology in these Eastern religions, is they will, quote, for them, there are two distinct realms, the truth of science and technology and the truths of religious faith, of religious beliefs and rules of conduct. Now, I can speak from experience as somebody who went to a seminary and got a philosophy degree that many Christians, including Christian leaders, do not see doctrine as important. They see moral behavior as important. They, they understand that there's this kind of echo of doctrine that's important, like they got to have it on their, on their website so they can be in their denomination or whatever. But go to a pastor and say, um, give me an orthodox view of the Trinity, for example. A lot of times they struggle because they, they got their exams right, they wrote their papers, then they just wanted to get into ministry. They just wanted to see lives changed. They just wanted to see people stop doing bad things. The problem with that is that doctrine anchors the morality so it doesn't become relativistic so that you don't end up saying, well, I really don't understand why marriage is between a man and a woman. Because if you don't have an anchor point of doctrine, and again, that could be your church, that could be the scriptures, and neither one of those, by the way, is just by virtue of saying that's my anchor, neither one of those is going to necessarily mean that that group doesn't go off the rails just by denying that authority. So somebody might say, well, the Bible says that marriage is between a man and a woman. Yeah. And somebody might say, and I don't want to listen to it. And I happen to be your bishop. Well, there you go. He's going off the rails. But when it comes to the idea of, well, doctrine doesn't really matter. That group is not merely denying the doctrine. They don't have a solid footing because they're ultimately just pushing a moral system in the same way that a lot of the Eastern religions do to attain enlightenment. Well, if you just love these people, if you just do this thing, if you just make uh, people who are in the LGBT community feel like they're not bad and all this stuff, that's when you're really becoming Christ-like and that's really what we're after. Well, what does it mean to be Christ-like? I don't know, right? They'll just say, well, lo love your neighbor. Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Um, make, make them feel good. Well, what, then what does it mean to love God? Uh, love your neighbor. That's what it means. Okay. And you're stuck because now what's actually informing your love of neighbor is no longer philosophy or theology or reality. It's the culture because you don't have an anchor point. You don't have something that's actually saying, no, I have to, by faith, accept this belief, even though you all say I'm wrong. And this is what we talked about with Eric Little last week. So when you start looking at the, uh, the differences in Eastern religions and stuff, I, I think that you can say, that some of our non-denominational brothers and sisters in Christ have actually started to imitate some of what Mortimer Adler would describe as the Eastern religions. They've rejected philosophy as a necessary tool in their Christian walk. They've rejected the idea that contradictions inform what they should have as faith and what they shouldn't have as faith. They've rejected that technology and science and stuff has no bearing on the truths of their, their, um, their, their religion. 
because they've separated them out. They've said, no, there's, there's this kind of truth and there's this kind of truth and they're not connected in any way. And what has actually ended up happening is, is that as the technological sphere has become bigger and bigger and bigger, their source, their little set of truths of what they believe to be a Christian is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually it's just going to, it's just going to dwarf it. It's going to eclipse it. And they're going to start doing all sorts of weird stuff like putting brain chips in and becoming superhumans and things like that. Who knows? But that's what, that's what's coming down the pipe. Elon Musk is working on it. Look it up. Neuralink. Anyway, <clears throat> so we're going to wrap up here. We're going to talk about the woman who is poor. This is a book I'm reading. Um, transition. We got to transition. So what are we reading? All right. So you'll find links to all these books in the description. And if you use those links, we will, uh, they're affiliate links with our Amazon account. So uh, make sure you use those if you want one of these books. So, you know, I'm reading obviously Mortimer Adler, The Woman Who Is Poor. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, just as references, you know, the Gulag Archipelago set. Um, we've got those uh, that we've used for the site as well for today's show. And then Dynamic Transcendentals. This is actually, I'm, I'm really interested in this book. I think it's going to be really good for the rest of the show. So this book right here, Dynamic Transcendentals, is uh, going to be kind of the basis for our little mini-series on Transcendental. So next week, we're going to talk about beauty um, and try and tie it back to some of the things about truth that we talked about today. But what I wanted to bring up about The Woman Who Is Poor is, is this really uh, affirmed something that I've been playing around with and I'm thinking about writing an article about the Eric Little one is done. We just haven't gotten the graphic done yet. Um, but the uh, and so that'll be dropping and then we've got the uh, truth one that's coming too so we're gonna try and get on top of those articles i know i said that we they'd be out before the show but uh we're still trying to get um more uh, established uh in our business practices but the point is this book the woman who's poor is is a really good book it's by leon bloy he um he uh led jacques maritan a philosopher that we talked about earlier uh when we started the podcast to christianity Jacques Maritain ended up becoming a Christian. Whew, sorry, I had to take a sip of my coffee. <clears throat> ended up becoming a Christian because of this book. And uh, it's about this girl who's a beautiful girl, but she's been destroyed by poverty. And part of the reason why I wanted to read it is because I wanted to know why, what, what about this book actually impacted Jacques Maritain to kind of awaken him from his, his atheism. But the other the other reason why is because um, it's just really well written. I'm I'm just blown away by it. But the third thing that's attracted to me attracted me to it is that it it has this um, sense of of understanding what it's like to be poor. And I don't really understand what that's like. That's not something I've been asked to to go through to the extent that that she had it. And I've I've had friends who have had to go through poverty like she had it. You know, uh, mice and rodents and stuff like all over her stuff and living in a cold, cold, dark apartment with abusive family members and things like this. But the, the premise of it is, is that, uh, that God uses these things to, to refine you into a, a godly person, which again, I don't think is great. is easy to defend philosophically. I think that's very difficult sometimes to defend philosophically, but then you read something like The Woman Who Is Poor. You read something that has a beautiful narrative uh, of, of redemption or, or showing even in death how somebody's life mattered. And, and you, you realize there's a competing truth here. This is a truth of narrative, right? We would say, all right, well, my philosophy might not be able to fully deal with this problem of evil and pain. 
but narrative seems to affirm what my philosophy can't can't necessarily get to on its own. So we'd have to just like we would say in science, you know, if science comes along and says that, you know, this is how a phone works. And so you can't have a belief that says these phones don't work because you use it every day. Well, same thing would be true of narratives and stuff. But one of the things that came out and is this quote where essentially a little backdrop before before you bring up the quote, Lindsay, do you have it ready though? Yeah. Okay. She's in this family. Her th This guy is basically like occasionally with his her mother. It seems like there might be a little bit of an abusive relationship there. Well, it's definitely abusive between Clotilde is the main character. And then um, Chapuis, it's French. Uh, he's the bad guy. And then the mother, I don't even, I don't remember if they say her name, but she's just referred to as the mother oftentimes. It's, they're just really abusive to Clotilde. And, um, and so one of the things that happens is they all need money, and they realize they have this beautiful daughter. She's about 30. They're all living together in this cold apartment in winter. And so uh, Chapuis is a junk, drunk guy. He decides to go to this artist who paints nudes, and he says, I got a beautiful girl for you. You know, can we can we get her to be one of your models? And uh, and then, you know, you'll you you'll get pieces of art and I'll get some money and we'll be able to, you know, make a business deal. So the drunk comes home and tells Clotilde he's made this arrangement. And Clotilde has a very, very spiritual outlook on life, despite all the things that she's done wrong. She's she's slept around with guys that don't love her. She feels horrible about that. She finds herself in churches weeping oftentimes before uh, God asking for help and, and ministers are ministering to her and, and things like that, despite all this poverty and this pain and this suffering. And so one of this quote that comes up is, is her wrestling with the question, should I become a nude model for my family, even though they hate me and they're abusive to me and all this kind of stuff, or, should I say no because of morality and all this kind of stuff? So she's in this, this ethical dilemma, and this is what she says. And, and I'll tie this into our cultural moment here uh, after we read the quote. A studio model, this is Clotilde speaking, and can you move me uh, uh, yeah. out of the way when we get down yeah. to that section? Yeah. A studio model, could it be possible? And yet she had vowed that henceforth no man should see her. This is because she slept around. But the poor are not even the owners of their own bodies. And when they lie in the hospitals after their despairing souls have fled, their pitiful, precious bodies promise for the eternal resurrection, O man of sorrows, are carted off without cross or prayer, far from your church and your altars, far from the stained glass windows in which your friends are depicted, to serve like the carcasses of beasts for the futile profanations of the vultures of human science. Truly, the wretched poor are subject to a law too hard. So it is quite impossible for a poverty-stricken girl to escape one way or another from prostitution. And so this is the dilemma she's in. She's trying to figure out is, is modeling a form of prostitution or not? And the way that this kind of, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because I didn't really have the words to describe what happened with the vaccine mandate. But I think this quote lets me kind of do that. When the vaccine mandate came out and your workplaces decided that they were going to force this on you. They were putting you in the same position as Clotilde. They were saying, yep, I know. We're going to do something to your body you probably don't want to do. But don't you love your family? Don't you want your job? And in when it first happened, I didn't see this. 
But as I started thinking about it and as I started reading The Woman Who Was Poor and I started thinking about some of the some of these uh, sessions I had sat in on on nonprofits stopping human trafficking and how the psychology works of people who get into human trafficking where they're willing to give up their bodies for some money or for some sort of affirmation or whatever, something they legitimately need, they're willing to sacrifice their bodies and even their morality in order to get it. The same thing happened with the vaccine mandate. Your work, your, your places of employment basically made you into prostitutes. They said, we own your body. We are your pimps. And if you want to keep working for your pimp, you're going to let us put this stuff in your body. Now, it's not a one-to-one analogy. That's not what I'm saying, because obviously there was a pandemic. But the idea of the moral dilemma that you should do something to your body that you wouldn't normally do because somebody is holding your job hostage or holding your paycheck hostage is a form of prostitution. And the, the woman who is poor puts it in no uncertain terms that if I give my body to this employer, is it prostitution? And I think that if we don't want to continue to be the whores of the government, that we probably need to start asking ourselves, what is the true, the good, and the beautiful of my body, mind, soul, and strength that is owed to God first, and then ask, how can I serve my government? So, that's what I'm reading, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you guys enjoy the interview with Rob Mitt and Pro-Life Coffee or North Arrow Coffee. Uh, they're the same group, and uh, I really hope that you enjoyed our conversation today on truth and all those satanic things, which were awful, ugly, and disgusting. In the meantime, don't forget about the writing prompt, What is Beauty? And we will see you next week. I'm Daniel Roberts. Keep thinking.